we felt like the allergy manufacturing industry was sort of stuck in the pre-digital age. So there was this presumption that if your factory didn't deliberately bring in allergens as ingredients, it meant that your products would then be free of allergens and would be safe. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. That's better products, better brands, and better leadership for a better world. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. On today's episode, we're speaking with Colleen Cavanaugh, CEO and founder of Zigo Foods, about the importance of transparency in the food system. I'm Colleen Cavanaugh, and I've been working in public policy and nutrition and improving nutrition for low-income kids. But of course, in order to do that, you have to do that for the whole world. Since I really started my early career back when I was working in Congress, my school background is public policy and economics. And then sort of the guiding force that got me into this whole nutrition piece was that I was diagnosed with celiac disease back when I was 15 years old, which was quite a while ago. So that's what started me down this path. I'm glad you mentioned the early work with public policy because I was just really curious when I was diving a little bit deeper into your history. I get excited about seeing people's career paths. And I saw that you were working in public policy before you started a CPG company. So I'm curious to kind of navigate those waters a little bit and hear more of your story of of how you got started in public policy. And then we'll kind of dive into how that led you into your current spot. But first off, you know, public policy around you went to school for that and did some early career work around that. So tell me what your passion was that drove you into that and kind of what you were doing in those roles. Sure. So I was, you know, being sort of a one of the kids that one of your first memories is Nixon resigning. I was always really interested in public policy and politics. And so I followed it a lot when I was a kid. I did Model United Nation like way before it was cool, way before it was a resume builder (laughs) for getting into college. During that time, I was diagnosed with celiac disease. So I was old enough, I was 15, and I had it, of course, for many years, that I had seen the decline in my health and my cognitive abilities and my social abilities over time. And then, you know, within a few months of changing my diet, everything turned around. Like I grew six inches in six months. Oh my gosh. I gained 40 pounds. Like it was crazy. And so I thought to myself, like, how in the world can we expect people to be their best selves and to achieve what they want to achieve for their family, whether that's increasing their income, having more stable household, if they are suffering because they're malnutrition, whatever the reason is, right? It's my family was not poor. I was malnutrition because I was eating the wrong foods and I didn't know it. Lots of people eat the wrong foods and they may or may not know why. Maybe a diagnosis, it may be that they're eating junk foods, they may live in a food desert. So it kind of strikes everyone. So when I finished my college career, I really wanted to do something that would help the environment and help improve nutrition, particularly for low-income kids. And I wanted to work in politics because that seemed like the biggest lever to pull. I went to Congress and I just walked into the office of the congressman who had sat on the committees that I wanted to be a part of and who had the voting record that I liked the best. And I walked in and I said, I want to work for you. And they said, we don't have any money. I said, I didn't ask for money. I just said I wanted to work for you. And within six months, I moved myself from the front desk answering phones into the back. I'd gotten an intern to cover the phones. (laughs) And I started writing constituents back. You know, it wasn't like it was a glamour job. 
But eventually I did get to work on school nutrition programs, the food stamp program, the WIC program, all of those. And I really thought that was the answer because you could really change so much by adjusting the nutrition standards in those programs. But when I moved to San Francisco and started working on the local level, and I worked for a statewide organization, but I ran local projects, I realized that so much of that public policy was not being implemented on the local level or even sometimes the state level. You know, the state of Mississippi was really resistant to meeting nutrition standards. And there were certain areas of California where the local people just were like, we're too busy. We just can't possibly do this. And so I realized the limitations of it. It was interesting because I was then working for a nonprofit and I thought, well, gosh, nonprofit can really be the bridge. That's where we could do it. But of course, once you're a nonprofit, you quickly realize that the resources are so limited when you're talking about marketing budgets of these huge companies, whether it's Dow Chemical or Kraft Foods or, you know, whoever it is, PepsiCo, nonprofits cannot win that battle. They play an important role, you know, kind of as detectives and as reporters, but they really cannot be the change agent. And I realized that it really has to be the consumer. Nothing drives change faster than consumer demand. We saw it with trans fats where everybody's eating butter and then trans fat, everyone said, oh no, we can't eat butter, it's bad for us. All the companies switched to trans fats. And then we found out trans fats were really bad for us and all the companies switched back. Like it was amazing. So people think gluten-free grew up overnight, trans fats and butter, that situation turned the entire industry around twice in like five years. It was crazy. So that's how I ended up doing that. But there is a funny story. So let me tell you a funny story. The last straw for me was we had been working, this was under the Obama administration, with a lot of really great advocates on Capitol Hill and great staffers and Congress people to set nutrition standards for snack bar foods in schools and anything that they might sell out of the vending machine or the snack bar. Some some kids you know, never even go through the lunch line. It's too long or whatever. And they go to these snack bars. So we were so proud of ourselves. We had set these nutrition standards and we thought it was going to be great. And industry was like, okay, okay, we'll do this. And within three months, we had the first retooled snack from a big company. And it was, I kid you not, a brown Rice Krispie treat. So instead of Rice Krispie treats, they were made with white rice. They had made a Rice Krispie treat with brown rice. And that was how they met the nutrition standards. And I just threw up my hands because like a brown rice krispie treat really is no more nutritious than a rice krispie treat. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. By the time you grind that grain into that tiny, it's got a little thing. more fiber, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I don't even think so because they grind the grain so fine that the workers have to wear masks because it'll get into their lungs, right? So it's really a color difference, which they probably sprayed on, to be honest. So I threw up my hands and I was like, this is crazy. There's nothing we can do from a public policy standpoint to get around these companies. So we have to get the consumers to demand that they change. So that's when I decided to start my own food company in order to serve as an example of how I want other food companies to ask and to encourage consumers to ask those food, of course, buy from me because I can't exist if I don't make money, but also ask the other companies that they love to do what Zico's doing. So that's how I ended up with food company. You touched on something important, which is public policy is great, but it needs to start with something because the politicians usually aren't making up these things off of whims, right? They're doing it because their constituents are talking about it or there's a lot of press around the subject or something else like that. So it takes some of these passionate early adopters or advocates 
to raise awareness over, around certain issues before it becomes a serious public policy is, policy issue. But at some point, by making it public policy, then it kind of reaches the the early majority and kind of jumps the chasm, so to speak, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Congress really follows the trend. They don't set the trend. So until they hear a lot of outcry and support from their constituents on an issue, they're usually not going to be introducing a bill that has a possibility of passing, you know, and, and that's what you want. It's not, we don't want a, a flag bill, something that says, oh, this is an issue. We want a bill that I actually go through and be adopted. So that all has to do with consumer education. That makes sense. And I think somewhere in between you starting the food company and doing that public policy stuff, I saw in your LinkedIn profile that you were also the founder of A Better Course which is focusing on improving nutrition. So tell me a little bit about that. Yes. So when I first moved to San Francisco, I got a spot on the wellness policy committee for the school district here because they were redoing their whole school lunch program. It was to be a you know year and a half committee assignment it turned into a 10 year ordeal, but we succeeded in the end, which was great. But what I realized, and I was a parent who had a kid in public school at the time. So that's how I was on. I was a parent. But when I looked at the room, it was full of doctors and administrators and nutritionists, parents who were higher on the income scale, you know, who could take time out in the middle of the day and go sit on a committee, labor representatives, but there really wasn't anyone who was specifically looking out for the low-income kids and their nutrition. So we needed somebody who was focusing on the core school lunch program, the one that's free for low-income kids. Everybody else wanted to work on the school lunch program that you pay for which is a lot easier to change, right? That's why I decided I needed to start a nonprofit so that people would realize that I have a board, I have people behind me, and it's a career. This is not me. Unfortunately, people would say like, oh, you're just a parent. I was like, no, like, first of all, you shouldn't say that at all. But I am a parent with extensive experience. And my whole focus in life is to improve nutrition for low-income kids. So I'm going to build a nonprofit so you will listen to me. And it worked. It definitely worked. Okay, that makes sense. So you... Ran that for a while, and that was part of where you realized that it wasn't just public policy, but also consumer demand or consumer awareness that drives some of that public policy. Out of curiosity, were there any big achievements that you were able to unlock during while running a better course and before launching Zego? Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing that I'm most proud of was that we did a survey of high school districts across the country to find out what they were doing with their school lunch programs. And as a result of the survey results, we realized that a lot of administrators at schools, whether they realized it or not, were physically segregating the low-income kids who were getting free lunch from the kids who were able to pay for lunch. And as a result, a lot of the low-income kids were skipping lunch because they didn't want anyone to see them either in a separate line or sometimes it was even a separate room at the school. So we brought this to Congress where I had been working in. My old boss was still there, Congressman George Miller. And I brought it to him and I said, look, this is, imagine that you're at a school bus and you have the low-income kids sitting on the right-hand side and the other kids sitting on the left-hand. Like We would never do that. And yet we're doing that in the lunchroom and we need to fix it. And so we actually were able to get, it's the fastest turnaround on a legislative change that I've ever seen. And then USDA really did an incredible job and the states have been doing an incredible job of implementing it. So as much as I just said that you can't do anything with public policy, sometimes you can. But this was so clearly wrong and people really wanted to fix it. So it was, a, that's the one I'm most mostly proud of. 
I find it's always really nice to have some sort of lasting thing that you impacted in your, in your career or in a job it makes you feel so good when something outlives you to some degree or outlives like your role. There. It's true. That's cool. You mentioned already that you realized that consumer demand was important. That's what's going to drive some change. So you went ahead and launched a, a food company. So tell us a little bit more about Zigo, how you decided to focus on this particular company and these kind of products. So this was back in the early, let's see, 2010s, 20 through like 2013. I was, I had a co-founder at the time and we were meeting every month to try to figure out like what type of business could we do that would help people be healthier in a really positive way that would hand them solutions instead of just telling them things like, you need to lose weight, you should eat more vegetables. We wanted to give them something that was really going to change their lives in a discernible way. And we met for a very long time. We had a long list. And every time we would get to something, there was some reason why you know, like it wasn't going to work. Like there isn't, we wanted to get together a group of doctors who would agree on what the nutrition standard should be. Well, of course, doctors don't agree. So and most of them don't know much about nutrition. So that wasn't going to happen. So we kind of got tri- going down, ticking down. But with the thing that stayed on there was, I like to joke, it's a widget. Like we had all these ideas for software applications and apps and things like that. But what people really seemed to need was a truly safe, nutritious snack, in particular, one that would fit into the new trend, health trend, which I shouldn't call it a trend. It was the emerging health need of people who have multiple dietary restrictions. Like my kids were the beginning of the food allergy wave back when I was a kid, only one person maybe in your whole school had a peanut allergy. And at the time my kids were in school, it started to be one and two per classroom. And then you might have a kid who has celiac disease and then another kid who, you know, had sugar issues. Maybe they had juvenile diabetes or something like that. So we were starting to see this where people were being diagnosed with multiple food allergies or a classroom had a need to accommodate multiple dietary restrictions. But all the companies out there, when I went to look for, say, food, because my kids' schools went nut free and we were already gluten free in our household. My son was really sensitive to sugar. So I had to have low sugar. Well, there was no company that was making anything that met our needs. And sometimes as a parent, like, you know, that ideally we would be making homemade food all the time, right? But you need a break. Like, even if you are able to get dinner on the table every night, which is an accomplishment enough, making snacks that are like ready to eat and they can pull out of their backpack that don't melt and don't smush and all that. And that's really hard. So that's how I started with Zigo. I said, okay, well, here's a need that we know is is emerging. So let's be a superfood based company, which basically just means like fruit seeds, basically fruits and seeds is where we started. And we've since added on oats. And let's make products that that is the base. Health is the base. And they happen to be also allergy safe and gluten safe and all that. Now we've expanded over time from that, but that's how we started with Zigo itself. And how difficult was the kind of allergen free aspect of that point? Because as you mentioned, it wasn't super common yet. I think there are more brands launching more allergen free products these days, but that was kind of some of the early days of, of doing that. Was it mostly just about making sure your products didn't have certain allergens in it? Or was it also, my hunch is, having to even find a manufacturer (laughs) that could process without any sort of residue of allergens? Yes, exactly. So when we started, because my kids don't have allergies, they have intolerances, you know, celiac, all that. We were hoping that we could have a product that we would make in a facility that did have nuts in it, 
but keep things segregated and keep them safe. And when we launched, we quickly realized we did an Indiegogo campaign and we quickly realized that we really needed to have more safety assurance for them. So I turned to my co-founder and I said, you know, Jonathan, what I want to do is test our bars for all the major allergens that we can. We'll test every batch. And then our customers would be able to somehow scan this bar and know and see our test results and know that it's safe. And that's how our whole QR code base system started so that we could give our customers 100% transparency in what our bar does or does not have in it. Now, we have since gone beyond that and we have gone to an allergy-free facility. So and actually, we've been to many allergy-free facilities. So they're not easy to find. They're often very small. And then the larger ones require large minimum orders. So it can be very difficult to get started in that industry. So I'm glad that we're not starting out anymore because it can be really rough. But now we are in you know top 14 allergy-free facilities. We still do the testing as a double check because things can slip on on ingredients. They can slip in in someone's hair who's working on the food. You just never know. So we do that as a quality assurance. And then we also now, of course, do the purity verification on other toxins as well. Gotcha. And you mentioned briefly that top 14, is that the top 14 allergens is what you're talking about? Yes. So in the U.S., we now recognize it used to be top eight. Now it's top nine because they've added sesame on this year. But in Europe and in Canada, they use either top 11, 12 or 14. It adds on things that often aren't present in these plants anyway. So mustard, sulfites, lupins, things like that, that are less common. It's just nice to be able to signal to the consumer that if you do have one of these lesser known allergies, our products are also safe for you. That's great. And I I think it's for those who are just sort of sensitive or don't understand the allergy space, it can seem like overkill to eliminate all these different things. But for people living with allergies and who are so sensitive that they can't even trust like something saying it's gluten-free. They have to like read through ingredients and call up the manufacturer and do all this extra research to really know. Otherwise, they're going to be in extreme discomfort or in case of peanuts or something like that, maybe even in the hospital if, they, <laughs> if that product isn't right. So, so having a product that is as tested and transparent as yours is probably really exciting for a lot of people out there. Well, one of the nice things about our company too is that, you know, a lot of times with allergy-free companies, they're trying to make a cookie that tastes just as good as a regular cookie or a pizza crust that tastes just as good. And I always use my husband as my tester. He's like, no, this doesn't taste like, you know, <laughs> There are some good options out there, but they're not the same as having one made out of wheat flour. Wheat flour has a lot of great properties to it. But with our company, we didn't try to imitate something by adulterating ingredients. We just use fruit and seeds. So we made snack bars out of fruit and seeds. We made trail mix out of fruit and seeds. You know, now we have oats and mucilage, which are made from oats and seeds and fruit. So our stuff doesn't taste different. We just have the advantage that the ingredients that we use are safe for most people. And because we're using seeds instead of nuts, they're much more environmentally friendly because seeds take far less water to grow than nuts do. So that's a nice aspect of what we're doing as well. Yeah, that's cool. Another thing that just popped in my head that I've always found kind of fascinating is that you see these allergen-free products or whatever, and often it's just like, well, of course, that is gluten-free. Why would there ever be gluten in there? But the funny thing is there's so much gluten or other things snuck into our food these days 
that that logic doesn't really apply. Like I, I'm pretty sure I saw like Twizzlers like candy or something like that that you wouldn't think would have any gluten in it. Someone was telling me that in fact they do have gluten and there's just so many products out there in the world that advertise gluten-free and you're like, well, that's dumb. Why would that ever have gluten in the first place? But you kind of understand why they have to advertise that. Another fun example is beer. When you see a vegan beer and people are like, vegan beer, like there's ever any meat in beer anyway or or whatever. What they don't realize is a lot of beer is filtered through fish bladders to speed up the oh process. Oh my God, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, so it's like you have to go so deep sometimes to find something that hasn't been meddled with by the food industry in some way, shape or form. It's true. It's true. You know, when you look at maple syrup, we were trying to find an allergy safe maple syrup. Now we're also a corn free company because a lot of people have corn sensitivities and corn. Obviously there's the GMO issue, which we are, we stay away from. And then there's other issues around pesticides. We really try to be corn free if we can. And we could not find a maple syrup that they didn't use canola oil as a defoamer. And that can end up bringing in corn cross-contamination in that aspect. So, but nobody would ever think to ask, unless you, you know, we're really in with that community. You'd never think to ask if the maple syrup in a bar has a corn cross-contact potential. Like that's just crazy. And and some oats have cornstarch, a little bit of cornstarch in them to make them creamier. The lack of transparency in the food industry has been shocking for me to learn. I knew I would learn things by starting a food company. I didn't know I would learn this much. Yeah, exactly. It's just so confusing out there. So I think that's why it's important for companies like Zigo to be out there really intentionally doing all that research and making sure you're not accidentally weaving in any allergens into your products, but also going as far as testing everything. Like I, I think that's newer in the space where I think a lot of people would just be like, okay, we're just going to work with the manufacturer that doesn't use these products, but you know, then you don't go also the extra step to test everything always, but I think you're going above and beyond there. Can you talk about in your mind or your customer's mind why that testing is such an important step for you? For us, we felt like the allergy manufacturing industry was sort of stuck in the pre-digital age. So there was this presumption that if your factory didn't deliberately bring in allergens as ingredients, it meant that your products would then be free of allergens and would be safe. Now, that was fine when we didn't have the ability to test for the allergens. But now that we can test for the allergens, the industry really needs to switch over. To some degree, they're doing that. They're testing equipment, you know, in between production runs with swab tests and things like that. But what we are really advocating is that you need to be testing the product at the end of the production line because that's where you're going to capture everything. Otherwise, you're just really not going to know. Now, I will say that our allergen tests have always been very clean. So we're definitely going above and beyond. But if you can imagine, you know, we like to get to a world where allergy people aren't stuck with two dozen brands that they can choose from, right? If we could get Campbell's Soup to be testing their products and then putting a QR code on, on each one of their, their cans of soup. And you could scan it to see, oh, was this batch gluten-free? Was this batch peanut-free? Then that opens up so much more of the store to the allergy consumers, which helps you out both financially and nutrition-wise. Because allergy-free stuff, it can be very expensive. And so there are, people are unnecessarily restricted to allergy-safe brands because other brands aren't providing transparency around the how clean their food is. But they could be. 
And that goes in multiple layers too. I know that during the big non-GMO verified movement where there were a lot of protests and stuff around transparency and labeling for that too, there was people wanting to have QR codes or some sort of mention on labels around whether or not things contained genetically modified ingredients, of course, but uh, for allergens too, you, you mentioned briefly the QR code. So again, you're one of the brands that goes above and beyond with transparency. So if someone was to be curious about test results of a product, what is that experience like for them? So for our products, if you want to know about either allergens, gluten, or if you're worried about glyphosate, pesticides, paraquat, which is another pesticide that's similar to glyphosate where we really need to be banning it, or over 400 other pesticides that we test for, or perhaps heavy metals, certain products like protein powder can be really high in heavy metals. With oats, you can have the same problem with cadmium and lead. So we test for all of that. So you could go and say, uh, we'll get a call, you know, sometimes from a family, they have a new baby and their doctor has said, we don't want you to give them rice cereal as a first food because of the arsenic problems. Cause there's been a lot of arsenic reports about rice and it is a real problem. So they say, we want you to use oats. So they contact us and we have found farms that are working together to produce this really pure oat that is the highest level of gluten-free. Plus we have tested it for aflatoxins, which is a fungus that can occur if the oats are too wet. And it's a very common problem. It's also common in peanuts, which may be an area where you might've heard about it more. Anti-nutrients, which can inhibit um, your absorption of the oats and can kind of leave you with a little bit of a hurting stomach after you eat your oatmeal. So we test for that. We test to make sure that this is the cleanest, most digestible, highest nutrition product possible. And then we can say to our customers, here's the marketing information. We can tell you about why this is so great, but you, you don't have to trust us. You can actually scan the QR code on the package and it will take you to the test results and you can see them for yourself. So when I tell you that we had no measurable amounts of lead, you can see the lab report that verifies that. So this is really important because testing is great, but you have to have truth in testing, right? People can say, yes, we have no measurable amount of lead, but they might be looking at 10 reports in front of them and they cherry pick, right? So we give you every report. We don't cherry pick which reports you get to see. We give you the report for your exact batch of the product. That way you're not worrying about cherry picking. So most, I mean, and I understand most consumers wouldn't even know that that could be an issue, but because Zego is trying to set the standard and show not just consumers, but also other brands, how this can be done and done with integrity and honesty and keeping your costs down because testing does cost money. It's important for us to look at those places where we know there can be some fudging that goes on in cherry picking by the brand and to make sure that we're setting the standard and saying, this is how you do it with complete transparency. And that's good to to set the example and show it's possible. And with that said, you've you've mentioned that ideally in the future, it's not just a handful of brands that people can trust, but hopefully this kind of testing and transparency becomes mainstream enough to where many brands are are moving in the, in this direction. With that said, for other brands looking to become more transparent and tested to know for sure that they're free of whether it's glyphosate or allergens or whatever else, what would be your advice for a brand kind of wanting to move in that direction? 
It's a really interesting question, Gage, because there's a legal issue that you have to be careful for as a brand as you get started on this. So Prop 65 is a proposition in California that governs over a thousand different chemicals and heavy metals. And sometimes it sets limits and said you can't have more than this certain amount in your product. Sometimes it doesn't set a limit. It just kind of leaves it out there that you can't expose people to this. And it leaves it to the litigation, really. And it can be very expensive if you get sued as a brand for exposing people in, in California. But of course, because people sell online, it applies to everyone who sells in the US. It can be very expensive. So you want to be careful how you move forward. So I was talking to a, and I think it's different for a small brand versus a large brand. So I'll start with a a small brand. A small brand, I think you can test your product, boom, get your results and set ahead to improve. I wouldn't be worried because for smaller brands, the people who usually sue on these things, there's kind of a cottage industry of lawyers in California who sue on Prop 65. They know small brands don't have any money and they're really looking for the settlement. I think that gives small brands breathing room to just test their finished product right now, see where they might have an issue, and then start breaking it down and working with their suppliers. But larger brands, and I spoke to Daniel Lubetsky at Kindbar about this back when he was with Kindbar, really what they have to do is look forward. So he buys, their company buys so much soy, right? Because they use soy bits, soy crisps in all of their bars. So what they really need to do is reach out to their farmers and say, in X number of years, we want your products to your ingredients to meet the following standards, or we won't buy them. We want no measurable glyphosate. We want, you know, lead below this amount, cadmium and arsenic below this amount, so that the farmers then have time to measure their soil, measure their product, look at how much glyphosate they're using. Can they change their practices? And if they can't, then kind goes to other suppliers, right? There's only so many suppliers that are clean for what Zigo is looking for. If we were as big as Kraft Foods, we couldn't do what we're doing because there's not enough clean raw material out there. So we have to build that through the demand, but it can be done. It absolutely can be done. And the testing is in, you know, if you look over the course of your brand, the testing is not that significant. And there are ways to cut down your costs on testing that it would stop you from doing this because you can also, obviously you can use this as a marketing tool. People want clean food and they're much more aware post COVID of the dangers of eating poorly and having, you know, pesticides and lead and things like that in your food than they were before because of COVID and also because of things like Flint, Michigan reports from environmental working group about arsenic and glyphosate, you know, all these things are much more known today than they were three years ago. Gotcha. So it's not necessarily that the major barrier to entry is just the time and cost of doing all the testing, but it's the start with testing to know where you're at and then work with your suppliers to get it cleaner and cleaner over time so that you can kind of improve your supply chain because it's more of the supply that is in limited or limited at the moment. But through awareness, we can increase that supply. We've seen that change happening in the short lifetime of our company. So, you know, we've been buying these ingredients for six or seven years now. And the fruit company that we buy from, it's a Pacific Northwest co-op. And we've been asking them, oh, are you testing for pesticides? Are you testing for pesticides? And they finally have been saying, you know, more and more people are asking us for that. So we have been testing for pesticides. And here's our report. And we were like, oh my gosh, that's so fantastic. Now, of course, they weren't testing for the pesticides that we were most concerned with. So we had to test it again. 
But the more companies ask suppliers and farmers to provide those test results, even if they say no, they're going to see that they're going to need to do that at some point. And that can really move the needle. So another thing that I know about your company is that you're B Corp certified, like uh, like my company as well. So <laughs> I'm always curious yeah. to know how other B Corp certified companies became, like what was the decision? What were your goals out of becoming B Corp certified? Let's see, we've been B Corp certified for four or five years now, maybe four and we really did it when we were very a very young company, probably before we really could afford to. But the reason why I did it is that, I, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, I set up Zego to be the company I wanted other companies to be. So we were donating to you know cash, not just from our net. We were doing it from our gross to work on you know communities that needed better nutrition. Some public policy organizations that I thought were doing really good work. So we were doing that. We were, you know, trying to shorten um, our supply chain so that we could reduce our carbon footprint. We were trying to work on recycled packaging. That's really hard and a whole nother topic. And a, a bunch of things we were doing right by our employees, you know, all of that. And there really was no way to succinctly tell that story until I learned about B Corp. Because B Corp, even though a lot of people didn't know about it back then, is a symbol on a package that tells you a lot about the company, right? So if you, and the, the problem we first started was that not many people knew about B Corps. And of course, it still is a lesser known certification, but it certainly is growing. So that's why I originally got involved in it. But what has kept me in it is the community and the solution building and finding that we're doing. So particularly around things like sustainable packaging, which is such a sticky widget for many of us in CPG, working with people to problem solve and working with people who, a community of people who have the greater good in their mind, where people who, like you and me, like you can't imagine starting a company that wouldn't be organized around the greater good. Like I didn't even understand starting a company where you're just trying to make money. I don't even understand why you would why you would do that, you know. And this is a whole community of people who think the same way. So it's been it's been a really good certification for us. And you were mentioning you're you're doing kind of giving on your gross proceeds. Do you have any other like giving certifications? Like we're also one percent for the planet members as well, and that's the same thing. You you donate off of your revenue, not your profits. So I'm curious if you're part of anything like that. Right. I love 1% for the planet. I have a viewpoint on certifications for Zego. And I think that actually it's it's sort of, we're, it's going to be the wave of the future. I feel like at some point we are so heavy on certifications that we're crushed under our own weight. And a company could spend all their time getting certified. And then in the meantime, you've lost your, or you haven't had your eye on the ball on sales and the company folds. So if you fold because you don't have the, you know, you're not making any money, then it doesn't matter how many certifications you have. And we use B Corp as far as specifically to your question about the donations. We just use that B Corp certification. We don't actually have anything. And of course, we get points because under the B Corp scoring system, because we do those donations and we let people know about them on our website and stuff. But when you look at a company like ours, so there's glyphosate-free certification. We actually don't get that because you can see our glyphosate test results for every single batch. That's actually stricter than the certification requirements. So it would actually be kind of downgrading what we're doing. 
Also, we test for paraquat, which we feel like is just as important as glyphosate for people to be talking about. It causes Parkinson's disease, and they actually use it to induce Parkinson's disease in lab rats to, in, when they study Parkinson's, right? And there was just a book published in March by three leading neurologists and PhDs who are specialized in Parkinson's, and they're calling for the banning of paraquat. So it's a leading cause of Parkinson's. So with Parkinson's in, it's really in epidemic proportions. When you look at dementias, Alzheimer's, and control for age, they're actually not increasing, but Parkinson's is going through the roof. So it's particularly with farm workers who are using paraquat. So we feel like that's just as important for us as glyphosate. Well, there's no Parkin, there's no uh, paraquat certification. You know, <laughs> there's no chlorpyrifrose certification. Chlorpyrifrose causes birth defects in the babies of farm workers. Like we also think that should be banned. So we don't want to cherry pick on these. We really want to try to expand the conversation and say, Really, transparency is the way to go here because we can't move public policy until people know what's going on. And until we have transparency, that's not going to happen. So that's how we've balanced out with the certifications is that we've decided we're going to do the ones that we have. So the B Corp, organic, gluten-free. But if you if you want to know more about the other things, just scan and look at our test results. And it's more manageable for our customers as well because it, it's expensive. As you know, all these certifications can really add up. And I love that you said that because I often feel the same way that I feel like we've got it backwards as a food system where the people who are doing things the right way have to pay extra and jump through all these extra hoops to get tested and certified and verified and all these other kind of things. And the people who are, you know, destroying the earth and making people sick get a free pass and then just get to collect all that profit by selling these high margin products. And they get all the subsidies usually from the government as well. So they get all the benefits and none of the responsibility. Whereas I feel like if it was flipped the other way around, you know, obviously this would never actually fly, but if it were flipped the other way around and if you do good, you get the free pass and subsidies. If you want to put a bunch of chemicals and fertilizer, like uh, allergens and you know whatever it is that you're certifying against, if you want to put all that in your food, fine, but you're going to pay a tax for it. <laughs> like, if we flipped it that way, almost overnight, all food companies would be or- regenerative, organic, <laughs> tested clean. Like all the, all the- yeah, it's true. I totally agree with you. Yeah, if we could just even stop the subsidies for the bad stuff, even the marketing and the export subsidies and... There's so much more that people don't even know about. This is an interesting story about chocolate, right? We use chocolate and so we're very careful about how we source it because there's a lot of slavery and some child slavery in Africa in the chocolate industry. And it can be heavy metals as well. So cadmium in particular, but also lead. So it's really hard to find clean chocolate. And I was doing a blog on it because I like to write about this sort of insider information that I discover as I come along from being an owner of a food company and share it with our readers. There is a government program that gives money to African growers of cacao to help get rid of child slavery, while other companies that are buying this really cheap African chocolate, because they're using not just kids, but also adults, slave labor, are swooping in and getting low cost chocolate, but the government's coming in and saying, well, we're trying to get rid of the slavery, which is not happening, by the way, they're not decreasing the amount of child slavery, but it's supporting these companies getting their cheap chocolate and everyone feels like they're doing the right thing. So it's incredible where government comes in and thinks that they're helping, but they're really not. 
I talked to the owner of a company, female owner of a company, and she uses chocolate. And she told me who her supplier was. And I said, oh, you need you need to check with them because they source their non-organic chocolate from Africa. And if they do, you know, it's probably from these two countries and they probably have a child slave labor issue. And she had no idea, no idea at all. I was flabbergasted that someone would not know the basics of the supply chain around what they're purchasing. Well, that's just the thing is you can have the best intentions and think you're doing everything right. And you just didn't dig deep enough yet because the industry tries to bury some of those things. Absolutely. Especially when it's coming from certain countries where there's more problems around labor and clean as well. You know, there's been a lot of mining and things like that. Yeah. So as a company that's sort of equal parts, better products, but also trying to set up better systems for the industry. What does the future look like for Zigo? Are you going to continue launching your own products? Are you more so doing the products as part of the advocacy and you're going to push more towards advocacy, like maybe some of both? We're doing both because really the two goals of the company are are completely intertwined. So Zigo can't be an effective advocate unless we have a big enough platform and a big enough megaphone that the consumer hears us and really takes action on what we're saying. So every box, every bag that we have has a message on it to the consumer to say, if you love what we're doing, please email or send a DM you know, on social media to your other brands that you love and ask them to do the same thing. So the big goal for us has been, and I know so many people right now who own food companies and supplement companies want to be just online. That's, a, that's their place where they're going to be. And I understand that because being in brick and mortar is really dicey. It's expensive. It can be, it's expensive to fail. It's expensive to succeed. It's really dangerous. And our view is that we can't be effective in what we want to do for people in handing them a clean product, but also on the advocacy front, unless we're on shelf. We need to be have our oats sitting next to Quaker Oats and Bob's Red Mill. And for people to look at this symbol, this purity verified symbol and say, well, what does that mean? And, you know, pick up that bag and say like, well, you know, then their learning journey starts, right? They know what pesticides are. They don't know what glyphosate is. What's that? So they turn it around they read a little more and maybe they don't buy us the first time, but they start on that learning journey. They start asking their friends, do you know about this? Like what's going on? So that's really how we can be the most effective. And of course, as we get larger, it'll help us with our costs and we can get our costs to be as affordable as possible for people. Because as you and I were talking about, being a clean company, it costs a lot more. So we really would like to continue along that path. And we, we, of course, would love to eventually be able to make some recommendations around public policies. But we really feel like at this point, transparency is the best path forward. We're worried that if we join on the call for glyphosate ban, we get that one ban, but then there's a million other chemicals, not a million, but there's hundreds of other chemicals that are going to come in and take that place. And actually, as glyphosate has declined in use, though it's still growing, the growth has decreased because there's more glyphosate-resistant weeds. There's more people saying that they don't, consumers saying they don't want glyphosate. So some like a major oat supplier in Canada just announced that they were going to no longer use glyphosate. Well, what do they use instead of glyphosate? Paraquat. Of course, yeah. You know, did you want to get cancer or do you want to get Parkinson's disease? <laughs> Choose your Maybe poison. Maybe you don't have to be making that choice stage, <laughs> yeah, right? I feel like, didn't that same thing happen when there's this big movement around getting BPA? I think it was out of food containers and plastic. Exactly. And then like 
all these companies started advertising BPA free. And then when you dig deeper, you find out that they just replaced it with like BPS or it was something like that. That's <laughs> pretty much the same thing, but different enough to where they could claim BPA free. And it's the same shenanigans that I ran into on Capitol Hill. And I remember my boss always said, be careful what you ask for because you may get it. So you ask for one thing. Don't ask for one thing. Ask for what you want because you must, still might not get it, but you're not going to get what you want if you keep asking for what you think you can get. So if you ask for one thing at a time, then you're never going to get a consumer right to know law, right? That's what we need. We need both a consumer right to know and we need to have pesticides and other toxic chemicals cannot be used until they are proven safe, right? That's the holy grail. We should be fighting for that. Now, if Congress pulls that back and does something different with it, then that's part of the sausage making, right? But it's as advocates, we start out by saying, we think we can get this passed, so we're going to give you this. We've already lost the battle. And, and you made a point that it should be, you can't use it until it's proven safe. But I think so often it's the opposite where they say, you know, it's it's innocent until proven guilty, aka you can use these things for 10, 20 years until enough studies have been done to find out how horrible they are. And then we're going to have to revoke them, even though now you've just caused a ton of cancer or Parkinson's or, or whatever else, because we decided not to test it first. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, the EPA just came out within the last few months, reiterating that uh, or reinforcing that their opinion that, par- that Paraquat does not cause Parkinson's disease. And yet we have leading researchers writing books about it, saying that this is one of the most tested pesticides out there. Oh, can I tell you a story? I know we're almost out of time, but this is a great story. So this is how they know that Parkinson's and Paraquat are linked. Back in the 80s in the Bay Area, there was a leading researcher at a hospital who was called down to the ER because there was a young addict who used, I think it was heroin, synthetic heroin, and had all the signs of late stage Parkinson's disease. And these symptoms had come on within two weeks. She went from being fine to having late stage Parkinson's disease. So we called around to a bunch of hospitals to figure out if anybody else had seen this. And they had about half a dozen cases during that time period. They traced it back to a lab, like an illegal lab, where this kid was making his synthetic opioids. And he used a chemical that is the same chemical, very, it's virtually the same chemical as in Paraquat. And when it gets into your brain, it changes into a different chemical. And that's what kills off your neurons, which is what Parkinson's is. So they were literally causing Parkinson's within a two-week period. And since then, it's been studied like crazy. There's over 100 different studies on on the link. And they use it, like I said, in lab rats. So we're lucky that we know that about that chemical. But we shouldn't have to wait for a a big event like that, right? Like you said, you should have the right to know that toxic chemicals aren't introduced unless they're proven safe first. It's like the grand industrial experiment, like everything we do. We can speed up farming if we put a bunch of, you know, chemicals on the land. And then it's like 40 years later, we're like, whoops, (laughs) maybe that wasn't the best idea. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, truthfully. And I do, you know, eating organic is the best proxy right now for all of this. And so we don't want people to think that we don't trust organic. We trust and verify because there is some fraud in the organic industry and we've caught it with our testing and gone back with glyphosate in particular and some cinnamon that we had bought that was organic and it was full of glyphosate. We can catch those things. We feel like the transparency that we're advocating for reinforces and makes really the whole organic movement stronger because we can get that fraud out of there because brands will be finding it and reporting it. 
we are pro organic and we're pro making organic better. And just testing everything. Cause there's, I just hear so many stories about like the fact that it's hard to find real honey these days, unless you're getting it from a local beekeeper. Cause most of the stuff that's like labeled as honey and stuffed in a plastic bear is barely even recognizable as honey anymore because it's just like either watered down or they've got fillers in there or they put some other stuff in there and it's like such a small percentage left of actual like natural honey. Yeah, absolutely. And there's kind of a joke in the industry that if you can't find an organic version of what you need, you can always get it from Turkey. But you know, it's not actually going to be organic. They're just going to slap an organic label on it. And things like canola oil, canola oil is processed with hexane. You don't want to be exposed to hexane. Why aren't canola oil companies testing for hexane residue and putting on their packaging no residue, right? Because they don't want anybody to know that they're using hexane in the first place. Keep it quiet until the consumers know it's a problem and then all of a sudden jump on to be the first one to certify. <laughs> exactly. They're just hoping no third party like EWG or Consumer Labs is going to do a, a, an expose on them. Or the clean label project. I have a feeling we can geek out on this subject for quite a bit longer, but in yes. the interest of our <laughs> listeners' time, we'll wrap up here. So I appreciate you taking some time out of your day to share your story with us and for all that you do to kind of advocate for transparency and purity of products in the industry. It's uh, much needed, and I think it's a trend that we'll see more and more of. That Well, that's what we're planning on. That's what we're working to achieve. So anything that your, your viewers want to learn more about us, we're at zegofoods.com. We encourage you to, you know, social media now, DMing is the same thing as sending an email for customer service. So DM your favorite brands, ask them what they're doing around testing, ask them, do they have lead? Can you see the results? They'll probably say no, but that's okay. You've asked and that makes a difference. So help us both by supporting our brand and by advocating for this with the other brands, because together we can really reform this industry in a very short period of time using the power of consumers. Yeah, that's beautiful. It almost makes me want to have like a website set up that people can send their a link to their favorite brands that will help them become more verified, tested, transparent, et cetera. But that's a whole nother conversation. Thanks for your time and coming out. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And thank you for all you're doing as well. I really appreciate it. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback. So send us your thoughts or ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com. Business can be a powerful force for good. Is your brand living up to its full potential? Go to EvolveCPG.com to learn about our new impact workshop, Exponential Good. Over six weeks, we'll be thinking bigger, getting relevant, spreading throughout, going exponential, working backwards, and making it real so you can walk away with a clear vision and a detailed action plan for scaling your brand's positive impact exponentially. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Colleen or her brand, go to zegofoods.com.